I swear I'm not trying to hypnotize you. I just am not legally allowed to play any music on this podcast here. So dire straits be damned. You're getting the drone instead, which sort of sounds like the intro to a dire straits song, in my opinion. So I, it works. And you're hypnotized now and you're sticking it out to the bitter end. OK, deal. We got one. Good. All right, here we go. It's Dave Gibson from the John DeBella show talking brothers in arms. The number 13 lucky 13 greatest album of the 80s as voted by you i figured i'd compile a quick little podcast for the ultimate dire straits album with some fun facts sprinkled in uh, just a little quick commentary because there's a really interesting backstory to this album perhaps the greatest dire straits album of them all 30 million copies sold worldwide that's the way you do it yes it is mark i agree uh and nine times platinum here in the u.s Winner of two Grammy Awards, including Best Engineered Album. Damn guys ain't dumb. No, they are not, of course. Produced by Mark Knopfler, as most of their albums were. And Neil Dorfsman, who flew out to Air Studios down in the beautiful Caribbean island of, let me see if I can pronounce this like Christopher Columbus did, Montserrat. Yeah, it was actually an island named by Christopher Columbus in 1493. And almost 500 years later, Mark Knopfler and company were discovering a new world of recording. This is one of the first digital recordings in music history. They had a beautiful Neve console, very sought after piece of equipment in the recording world, and a Sony 24 track digital tape machine, making it almost completely digital. came close enough uh, to be marketed as one of the few titles in 1985 whose Sonics took advantage of the new CD format, which of course was capable for a cleaner sound, and the sales bore that. Yeah, remember CDs? If any Gen Zer out there is listening, you might have to Google that, do your homework, but uh, this was the first album, Brothers in Arms, the first album whose CD sales outmatched its LPs. first album to sell one million cds in fact it got to the point where it overwhelmed manufacturing of cds and it was in such high demand a lot of people couldn't even get their projects copied to cds everybody was mad everybody's pissed at dire straits who's this guy in the headband noodling on his guitar everybody wants well they should have known because at this point dire straits was a known commodity they went double platinum with most of their albums after of course sultans of swing took off Early on in their careers, uh, this was their fifth album. Fourth album, that came three years earlier, 1982. Love Over Gold, it was called. And uh, they weren't exactly gunning for rock radio stardom with an opening track of 14 minutes long. Yeah, you're not exactly gunning for Casey Kasem to be heralding you with a track like that. What the hell's going on here? But this album landed squarely in commercial success's lap, mainly due to their trademark clean sound. They got some punchy guitar-driven tracks with catchy melodies. Of course, the two biggest tracks on the album, Money for Nothing and Walk of Life, would open up the band's music to millions and millions of new fans. Money for Nothing, of course, legendary for its MTV music video, which definitely, yeah, that'll work some wonders for your album sales, getting that played in rotation. But first comes the music, like anything with a rock band. And this album has some really interesting, humble beginnings. So they're down there in this Caribbean island, and it just so happens that Sting is down there at the same time on vacation. Yeah, I'm not making this up. Sting and Mark Knopfler collided in a boogie boarding accident. Okay, pretty sure that wasn't how it happened. But he was down there on vacation. He hops on Money for Nothing. Everybody, of course, knows him singing the phrase, I want my MTV. He pinched that from his own police hit, Don't Stand So Close to Me. 
as the exact same melody and was later embarrassed because his publishing company demanded a songwriting credit due to that melody. Sting's like, I have enough money. It's not quite tantric to be selfish. Really, don't do it. They did it. They got credit for that. Another interesting development by Sting being in the mix. After recording about half the album, Neil Dorfman, the uh, co-producer for Dire Straits, decides that Terry Williams on the drum throne just ain't hacking it. He found Terry Williams playing to be really lacking. And as the weeks dragged on, Knopfler basically came around. He said, okay, yeah, you got a point. Now, Williams wasn't fired from the band, but he was replaced for recording. So he didn't get the full Pete Best treatment. He got half a dose, which, in my opinion, as a drummer, I'd be like, fine. I don't need to be the star in the booth. I'll take the stage. I'll take the groupies, the touring. That's fine. Keep me in the band. I'm happy. And Sting's drummer, Omar Hakim, steps in, who, yeah, I guess apparently Sting uh, vacations with his band. And according to Dorfsman, it was the right decision. It just made an immediate difference. Omar Hakim knocked out every single drum track in two days. And the only remnant of Terry Williams' drumming is on the intro to Money for Nothing, the crescendos that happen right at the start. That's it. Dorfman said, quote, we were in Montserrat. It was beautiful. There was a lot of swimming, a lot of hanging out. And basically, we got into a thing where the energy slowly ebbed away. It was like being on vacation for a while, and we lost a bit of edge without even realizing it. The music needed that energy, and we weren't really getting it. We weren't vibing at all. But then I remember Omar coming in, and it was like a bulldozer. New York attitude, New York energy, end quote. Now, some other fun facts about the album. Weird Al Yankovic, he parodied the song. Money for Nothing uh, for his movie UHF, and he mixed it with the theme tune to Beverly Hillbillies. In fact, Mark Knopfler gave him permission only with the caveat that he insisted that he play guitar on the parody song. Pretty cool little move there. And uh, Walk of Life was written to celebrate buskers on the street of London. Those are street performers. Very British word there. Buskers. And the original music video features a busker on the tube, as they call the subway. Uh, But it was later changed for us here in the U.S. market. And if you remember, the video is a basically a montage of sports bloopers synced up perfectly to the song. It's great. The start of it is uh, is a glorious moment of 80s kitsch with uh, Mark Knopfler putting on his headband, his wristband, his gloves, his basically his rock star outfit matches that of an athlete. And uh, yeah, it's them heading out to play a show as if they were heading out on the field to perform. So uh, check that out if you get a chance. Brothers in Arms, by the way, uh, speaking of pop culture stuff, uh, it was featured in the Brad Pitt, Robert Redford film Spy Game right in the beginning as Brad Pitt flies out of Vietnam and uh, Metallica covered it. If you remember, if you saw the Neil Young's Bridge School Benefit in 2007. So uh, a lot of secondary usage from songs on the album. But as I was saying earlier, I mean, the digital success of this album, the insane demand for the CD, uh, Mark Knopfler says it was a fluke. It was just one of those things that was just perfect timing. He says if it hadn't been them, it would have been somebody else's album. And this album launched them into that arena rock category of success, something they really weren't built for. You know, as the band's profile continued to grow, Mark Knopfler viewed their increased fortune with a certain amount of disdain, of alarm. In fact, in an interview in 2004, he says, we just picked the ball up and ran with it, which is what most kids do when that happens. And that's fine. We had a good run. We got really big. It just felt it got too big to be real and to be manageable. I think there's an optimum size for things. I'm a pretty slow learner, so it probably just took me a bit longer than most sensible people 
to get the sense of proportion right. And what Brothers in Arms did with their outsized success, what it ended up doing to the band's detriment the next decade was make it impossible for Knopfler to slip by unnoticed in the real world. He's a pretty reclusive guy, and he's even said all this talk about, you know, being the biggest band in the world after Brothers in Arms, that was starting to take away from the music after a while, and he just forgot how important Dire Straits was on an intimate level, especially to other people. They just sort of became this global machine after that, and Knopfler basically just had to stop and remind himself that no matter how many platinum records you earn, no matter how many Grammys you win, it's the music that matters. He said, quote, babies are born to it. Paintings are being painted to it. People have lived with it and loved with it. A song like Sultans of Swing has become like a person, a living thing. So why should I object to going and singing it? It has a whole other life apart from me. It would be pretty graceless not to let it go on living, don't you think? And live on it, Shell. It's voted by you the number 13 greatest album of the 80s, Dire Straits. In the city of brotherly love, brothers in arms. That's the way you do it. BackstageCountry.com, your online home for all things country music. Today, having a great music video can really help push a song to the top of the charts. We choose our favorite six of the best country music videos. From Reba to Hardy, go back in country music history and deep dive each of the videos. Text VIDEO to 45911 to see who made our list at BackstageCountry.com. Text VIDEO to 45911 to get a link to the list sent right to your phone from BackstageCountry.com.